welcome to Flex Forward, a new Collier's podcast series. Through discussions with industry leaders, this series will include short episodes that look at some of the emerging trends and current insights around the flexible workspace industry. In our fifth episode, we'll be speaking with Harry Flood, Senior Director in the EMEA Valuations Team. He has unrivaled expertise and knowledge about how lenders, valuers, and institutions look at this sector. So with that, let's dive into it. Welcome. Today, I'm speaking to a good friend and colleague of mine, Harry Flood, who's one of our senior directors in the Colliers and Mere Valuation team. Harry's got a world of experience, um, not only in valuation, but in particular, uh, flex valuation, having worked for a number of different institutions and operators over the years. Um, um, So, Harry, thanks so much for joining the team today and, and joining our podcast series. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Pleasure to be here. So, I think... Um, we often will you into many conversations across the world because inevitably flex and its implication on valuation is is a pretty hot topic for many of our investor clients. Um, and there is a lack of consensus in this sector. There's definitely a lack of understanding about how this income can be can be valued. But it's definitely continuing to grow. Even in our last report uh, that we just released. Expansion in Amir was over 150,000 square meters. So even in a in a pretty bad market, you know the, the sector is continu- continuing to grow, and we can, we we foresee that to to continue. So from your perspective, how are valuers and lenders looking at the sector and 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 approaching the income stream that this type of activity can generate? I I think from a valuation perspective, valuers. Um, are kind of in very much in two camps at the moment. One, which is slightly gearing towards a more traditional approach, which is slightly bury the head in the sand and say that the security of the income is not there and therefore why should we be, be really factoring it in at all? But then there's the other school who are slightly more forward thinking and looking at how the market and how the offices are being used generally across, um, across the markets. In that instance, I think some valuers are starting to um, look a bit more commercially at it and fundamentally trying to reflect how investors might look at this and how institutions and landlords um, assess this income. And fundamentally, I, I believe that's how, as valuers, we should be looking at this. Um, we're, we're meant to be reflecting the market, not trying to make the market. Um, but <clears throat> by the same token, um, there isn't necessarily a set methodology. Um, the RICS haven't provided any sort of guidance on that, um, which I think uh, is probably a good thing in, in many ways. It, it prevents the those that don't necessarily have the same sort of knowledge and understanding of the sector from dabbling in something and fundamentally um, not really understanding it or getting to the bottom of it. However, having said that, it, it does seem as though there's a there's a bit of a consensus in the market and um, there are numerous people out there that are sort of going down uh, a sort of income analysis route and, and using that as the best way to, to undertake these valuations. The exact methodology is probably uh, uh, far too cumbersome to really go into, but it's, um, it, it is all about looking at how the rents for more traditional space, um, what, what sort of levels those could be achieved, but then also looking at the the overage that can be achieved in terms of the EBITDA when uh, when this sort of flex space is, is operated well um, and the buildings themselves lend themselves to this sort of operation. 
the, the other bit of your your question really was the about how the lenders in the market are really looking at it, and <clears throat> it, it's a, it's a little bit um, sort of like the first part of that question. There are a lot that are still very nervous about it, but there are there are some lenders um, in all sort of walks of of, of debt finance um, uh, who are who are more happy these days to sort of take reliance on what we're saying and and have a bit more of an open-minded view in terms of um of how income is generated from an asset yeah it's it's definitely mirroring what we're seeing across the world where it's undoubtedly being driven by occupiers the demand for the space it isn't just a sort of case of um all the speculative space you know being being opened and no one using it It really has been driven by occupiers you know big or small and what the last couple of years has done, and I think pretty much a consensus now, is you know it, it's um, it's an intrinsic part of of, of real estate, and um, and I think lenders, investors, developers are all being forced to adapt their thinking about the sector. I think there's a lot of misconceptions probably about it, um, and um, but ultimately they're going to have to change. They're going to have to evolve. So I think a lot of them are going to be forced to. Now look at this, perhaps through a new perspective, through a new lens, because because that's what occupiers demanding, and, and they're going to have to react to it one way or another. Um, and obviously that flows flow down the chain um, ultimately to to, to to lenders and, and valuers is, is is important. I think I think one of the difficulties that the lenders have got is um, there. You could have a, a relationship manager or a. Uh, who 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 is willing to look at this sort of thing, but then there's the the risk of a the hurdle that is credit, whereby um, the key focus is looking at, at things like um, interest cover, etc. Which, unless you've got a reasonable uh, uh, sort of trading history and performance from uh, an operator within this sort of space, it does make it quite difficult. For them necessarily to paint such a picture, because fundamentally the most the more traditional high street banks are still relatively conservative when it comes to this sort of thing, and and aspects like interest cover are are sort of top of the agenda when it comes to getting deals through through the credit teams. Um, yeah, uh, and so it's whilst we can take a sort of more positive approach to them. It, sometimes it doesn't necessarily get to that stage because um, uh, you don't have the trading history necessarily to support what what you want the, the picture you want to build. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things you said there. I, th- I think um, that trading history piece is is is, is really interesting. Um, firstly, because this market is tremendously fragmented. We're seeing more operators, uh, smaller operators growing, new entrants, and obviously the existing players continue to, to, to grow. Does it, from a valuation point of view, does that mean younger operators are going to be perhaps at a disadvantage compared to some of the incumbents or the, the more established ones when, when you're looking at income? Yes, um, but by the same token, I think that's, that's slightly the case in all walks of property. Um, so... Uh, if you're looking at a coffee shop, for example, a, a trader who's got two coffee shops versus a Starbucks covenant is always going to be looked at sort of as a as a as a more risky operator. I think it's it's just a case of actually making sure that where you've got the where you because fundamentally we are valuing bricks and mortar still, 
And so what you've got to create is you've got to create a scenario whereby even if you've got an operator who isn't necessarily, um, who doesn't have the track record that, that say one of the, the big boys has, as long as that real estate is transferable to another operator and it lends itself to this sort of this sort of use, then we should as a we should try and reflect how how the market would look at it in terms of I mean I know you're having sort of multiple conversations with um, uh, institutions and investors talking about trying to get this sort of space into their buildings. And it should be reflected as far as we're concerned. So as long as the building is geared up to uh, that sort of use, then there's no reason just because one one operator doesn't necessarily make it work, doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's not uh, positive going forward. And I think that's... So, so how, how granular would you get when you're considering that? Would you look at local competition, local death rates? It, and I know I appreciate it, it's difficult at times to understand pricing in this sector because it's a slightly closed market um it's definitely a that, that's definitely an issue but do you look at it do you look at the, the the flex asset or the operation um for its merits as you say building the, the floor plate the design the fit out uh the style the local competition is that all go into the thinking so it, i mean it, it probably what it comes down to is how the space is is occupied and I know topic close to your heart is sort of lease model versus management agreement and who's paid for the fit out, et cetera, and what sort of what sort of agreement is in there. I mean, when we value, we should be looking at essentially the spec of, of the building. Um, and I think it could should almost be sort of, that's obviously got to have a part in it. And I mean, you've got your more traditional features like your location, your transport, your condition, your your spec. But then you've also got the slightly more flex-led aspects like your your technology, um, uh, the density and efficiency of, of the use of the building, the competition in the area as well, um, and, and the local demand, um, and the amenities and services within that building too. Um, because obviously all of that plays into the, the operation, how successful it's going to be. Um, and fundamentally how transferable that asset will be to not only an investor but also an operator but um all of that when grouped together results in if if you're if you've got sort of um positive scores let's say on all of those features then it's it's a sustainable income stream because uh, as long as that space is maintained then there's no reason why that income isn't sustainable so, so much like a hotel operator changing hands in that in that respect. Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways. I mean, obviously, all hotel operators have different requirements. I mean, uh, even comparing Travelodge and Premier Inn, for example, they're not. It's not a necessarily a like for like switch. But there's no reason why if one flex operator can't make space work, that another can. Um, one thing we've definitely seen over the last year, there, there have been, you know, there's no hiding from it. You know, some flex locations have closed because of the pandemic. Um, I think possibly some have been closed because maybe they were bad decisions in the first place. But that's another that's another conversation. But there's been not as many takeovers as I as some have expected. And I think partly that is down to, well, 
firstly, because they typically are older locations, which are probably not fit for purpose anyway. So I think some operators have, have used it as an user's period as an ability to get out. Um, but the ones which are perhaps a little bit newer, in some instances, that the design and fit out is is quite prescriptive, quite bespoke to a particular operator. And it has been a bit of a difficult conversation for a, for a new operator coming in to, to actually make the required changes that they feel feel are needed to, to to recreate or create some new income from that from that asset so it's um i think it's something that's especially important as you touched on when when we think about management agreements and partnerships between operators and, and, and investors because we're doing a tremendous amount of work in this space at the moment and it's it's you're not looking at a, just a property deal you're looking at much how you described it you're looking at the whole you know um looking at it from a lot of different angles really stress testing the the whole business plan the whole team and and really getting under hood under the hood of the 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 operator and and, and business plan so it's it's really important for for landlords i think to to try and in a way remove themselves slightly from those that traditional mindset of what's the covenant what's the lease length and and take a slightly bigger picture when reviewing these types of partnerships because they're definitely increasing i mean i could probably talk for hours about the benefits of it but but, but to save everyone um a sort of boring hour um i mean the, the, for me the key benefits really are it, it's it's significant significantly more control a landlord has by partnering a much better alignment of interests you know that are going to hopefully benefit a whole building or a whole campus and much more um, exposure to upside as well. So rather than just hoping for a rent to be delivered from an SPV, actually having having income more than likely in bad times as well as good times. So on balance, I, I think we're seeing a lot of investors really understand the full benefits they can get from partnering. And as such, a lot of lenders and um, valuers are now having to, to understand this slightly different um, delivery structure. So how... You've gone into a lot of detail about how you look at the income. I mean, in terms of the commercial structure, do you think there's going to be a difference in yield between a lease to a to a flex provider versus a management agreement to a, to a flex provider? Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, it obviously massively, with all these things, it just depends on what sort of the terms of those management agreements are. And from a, from a straightforward valuation perspective, how much of that income is is guaranteed whether there's a, a, a base level of income with additional sort of ratchets as you as they generate um, strong levels of EBITDA or whatever, however it's being judged. I mean, what I think probably has been uh, brought to the fore more during the pandemic is the fact that the number of SPVs, as you say, that have uh, basically turned around and said that we're we're handing back the keys or or we want to realign our lease um more in our sort of our favor um and i think off the back of that i think um a lot of investors are now quite wary of the sort of spvs to even some of the the the, the bigger more recognized operators um whereas but actually at the same time they're also being pushed by occupiers to deliver that type of space in their building. So they, they have got a sort of a fork in the road to really choose. You know. Exactly. And I mean, as you say, I mean, I think it's, it feels as though from sort of our discussions that more and more management agreements are um, being offered with a 
because there's 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 more of a parachute essentially to the operator um there are stronger covenants being placed on these um, agreements um, and so off the back of that you could argue that actually whilst the uh, the level of income that is is fundamentally guaranteed by them might not be as great you've at least got a better operator on the on the hook who can't just necessarily terminate or turn around and and, and, then that, links back, and that links back to your sustainability of income piece exactly so, you know, if you have a choice of a SPV from an average operator versus, you know, best in class operator in a particular geography under management agreement, you know, what, what, what do you what do you go for? And actually, if if the if the latter, if the, the best in class is is actually, you know, incentivized the structure the commercial structure is designed in the right way to ensure alignment and also all the other benefits that Dan is going to achieve by doing that having that type of structure and that, that alignment and that collaboration that's, that's possible which you don't really get in a lease on balance i think the valuation world is going to catch up and start to realize actually well yes on balance yes it's not actually necessarily all about a lease especially when we're not talking about all of the income there's lots of percentages thrown around of you know no more than twenty percent or thirty percent of income from um, from an asset should be from leased. We haven't. It doesn't. No one really talks about what type of commercial structure underlies that. But do you have a view on a sort of percentage? It's often the question we're asked of, of what percentage of a building should be flex. No, uh, I, I, to be honest, I, I can't say. I think every building should be different. And again, it, it slightly comes down to the fact that um, every asset should be sort of. Judged on its own merits, essentially, not all not all buildings are geared up for this. This sort of sort of manipulating a floor of flexing or whatever it might be. I mean, my from what I've seen, because fundamentally from a valuation perspective, it there aren't really any sort of beacons that have sort of given us the evidence that we need and the the ability to um, analyse the deals in as much detail as as we would like. But but you get the impression that um, there's general consensus in the market that if you have this sort of fun, uh, sort of an, an amenity almost in within your building, it encourages um, lettings on a slightly quicker basis. You might be able to achieve higher rents throughout the rest of the building um, and, retain, and, ret- and retain existing tenants as well. Exactly, and it, it, it so that's a sort of interesting aspect for me is that. Whilst I'm not sure you can necessarily say what percentage of the building should be should be flex, it's obviously the way it seems to be going. I mean, particularly with the pandemic, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to be a CEO or an MD of a company right now because how do you encourage your staff back to the office? Um, you've got to offer them amenity because fundamentally everyone's got amenity at home that they don't have to pay to get to work. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's very it's very true. It's very true, and we're seeing that within our occupier services um, team. You know, increasingly, our 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 corporate clients are saying, you know, we will only consider buildings with flex in it. You know, what is the tenant uh, amenity provision, and and landlords. Some landlords are obviously able to deliver that themselves, and we, there's lots of evidence across the world of, of some landlords being able to go down that route if they're if they're have got the willingness and and resources to do so. But but if they don't. You know, you know this better than anyone. You know, there's some huge funds and investors who actually have incredibly lean teams, very small asset management teams, and they just don't have the manpower or resources to deliver this, these types of environments themselves. So, what is then the solution? And um, 
yeah, it, it's it really is almost table stakes now for these types of buildings to have this this type of um, offering, which actually interestingly really links to the, the, one of the final things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, obviously COP26 closed recently. Um, finally, it's becoming, you know, I think the penny's dropping finally um, that that real estate has a tremendously important part to play in everyone's um, you know sustainability adjustments and so on and and some of the capital markets teams teams are saying well look, actually buildings which don't hit certain energy efficiency uh, ratings um, are going to start to see a detrimental impact on their yield you know could you ever see a situation where the same would uh, occur if there wasn't flex in the building or wasn't amenity, shared amenity in the building i i love the concept of that i mean as far as i can tell and i think as the market can tell at the moment there isn't actually a premium for efficient energy efficient buildings however it looks as though we're sort of going moving in that direction there's no quantifiable um, margin in yield or or but but as i was talking earlier about having flex in the building um if you've got a, a sustainable building and and i'm no sustainability expert but it it does appear that Occupier demand is uh, greater at the moment for more sustainable buildings, and therefore you might have shorter void periods, etc., which fundamentally will enhance your value when you're looking at sort of yield profiles and what have you. And you could argue that that in itself is a you might tweak the void periods, and therefore it's got an impact on your yield profile. Um, and I think that's again another. It's a really interesting conversation because. One of the changes I've seen over the last two or three years is historically flex has been a sort of last infill lease or or, or, or deal um, into a building, whereas actually now it's total role reversal. If you look at all of the major schemes across uh, across well the world pretty much now, you know the best in class buildings are putting flex in as the first thing. Almost it's it's almost before they begin construction in some instances, and that's really tying into that whole, let's make the building as attractive as possible. Um, you know, Unibail Westfield did that in Trinity Tower in Paris, you know, the stands at M&G are doing similar projects. Um, Bearings up in Manchester did that with the landmark, and, and you know, the list goes on and on. So I think that's that's um, that's a big change. And I think as th- there's been a theory that having place in the building is gonna be accreted to the, to the, the rental profile, reduced void. I, I think as over the next sort of six, 12 months as some of those projects come to fruition and, and you know they fill up it'd be great to actually try and get some analysis of that to, to, to provide some evidence because that's what you guys need is evidence isn't it to be able to back up all of this theory it's exactly right i mean the one thing we are lacking is data really um from this sector is uh, it's exactly the same as um the sustainability piece mm. is what we really need is we need people when buying assets with a EPC ratings or um, excellent BRIAM ratings. We need to be able to say them to be able to turn around and say, well, um, we factored in this for for that. It's got to. We kind of fundamentally need the same for for flex space. We need people to say, look, this is how we've analysed this transaction. Because however much we we don't like to say it in the valuation world, you could jump between twenty five basis points on a deal, and you you'd be able to justify it. Um, I'm sure one way or the other, but actually, if you said, "Look, we've we've moved the we've moved the dial by ten basis points on the yield to reflect the the flex space or the to reflect the um, sustainable nature of the building," um, that's kind of what we need because we just don't have that in-depth data that. 
All right, mate. Well, I think we've, I think we've, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. I honestly, I really appreciate you lending us all this time. Good stuff. Well, look, Harry, thank you so much. Really, really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, um, to you as always. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening. Share your thoughts about this episode, or if you have any ideas for future episode topics, please email us at flex at colliers.com. You can find our latest publications, articles, and other material on colliers.com. And stay tuned for our next discussion in our series, which includes Mike LaRossa, Head of Channel Partnerships at Upflex, speaking to my good friend and colleague, William Birchfield.